Love is a powerful thing. Especially the first time you feel it. All right, tell me, what was your favorite primary? Oh, 76. You're just saying that. No, 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 it was. It was, it was, you know, it's like your first love. It, it, it was, it was unbelievable. I, I never, you know, I, I, I always believed, but I never thought it would happen. I never thought it would happen. And, and then it did. Think about your own first love. It probably forever influenced the way you view relationships. Your first love can change your life. That's what happened with Billy Shaheen. His first love was Jimmy Carter's 1976 New Hampshire primary campaign. He had his eye on Carter long before then. Actually, I think we can say it was love at first sight. I started watching this governor of Georgia named Jimmy Carter because his first official act as governor was to hang a picture of Martin Luther King in the state capitol and declare segregation in Georgia was over forever. And I said to my wife, this guy has got some balls. I mean, he really has got guts. I I love this guy. I'm going to watch him. So those actually weren't the first things Carter did, though he did do them. But who among us doesn't fudge the details of their first flirtation? That sort of thing happens a lot when it comes to Carter's 1976 campaign in New Hampshire. It's now the stuff of legend around here. And so the details are often embellished. And Billy Shaheen, he knows that legend maybe better than anyone. He was one of the New Hampshire co-chairs of that campaign. And he went on to become a power broker in the Democratic Party. He's led a bunch of other presidential campaigns around here. It's actually why I gave him a hard time when he first told me 76 was his favorite. Come on, I thought. I specifically came to you to talk about this campaign. You're just trying to play right into my hand here. But no, Shaheen told me. He loves this campaign so much because it shows the world what New Hampshire could offer the rest of the country. It basically wrote the argument that our biggest defenders use as to why New Hampshire has to hold the first in the nation primary. Jimmy Carter is an example of if you believe and you're ready to work hard enough, you can be anybody and be president. And that's the hope that New Hampshire gives. Now, of course, the New Hampshire primary was around for decades before Carter came around. But there's a good argument to be made that 1976 was a defining moment in New Hampshire's political history. This campaign changed people's lives in a way that previous primaries hadn't. I'm serious. Many of the New Hampshire staffers on the Carter campaign, they'd go on to incredibly powerful political careers, not just here, but in Washington. And so in 1976, it was clear this first in the nation primary thing. Forget the candidates for local politicos. It could be their ticket to power. Jimmy Carter's run in 1976 is an essential piece of the first in the nation primary mythology. And that story has been passed down over many political generations, retold hundreds, maybe thousands of times. The advice I always give anybody that's working on a campaign for the first time in New Hampshire is you've got this little dragon egg and it's this little bitty creature and then all of a sudden at the end you just grab onto the tail and hold on for dear life and hope you don't get thrown off because it just blows up. Now, you could Google the 1976 New Hampshire primary and figure out who won. Spoiler alert, it was Jimmy Carter of Plains, Georgia. 
But the story you probably don't know and won't find on the internet is what his campaign did for New Hampshire and how his win here continues to shape the assumptions and expectations of what running for president is supposed to look like. Well, New Hampshire is a unique state. It's the only place in the nation where we have a chance to uh, campaign on a personal basis. Jimmy Carter wasn't supposed to win. He was seen as the joke. Listen to me. Every vote you get in New Hampshire is worth like 10,000 votes someplace else. I'm Lauren Chuljan, and this is Stranglehold from New Hampshire Public Radio. Come on, let's all play What's My Line? Our story begins in 1973, on the set of What's My Line? It was a classic game show with a pretty simple concept. A panel of celebrity guests asks yes or no questions to try and guess someone's job. In the meantime, would our first challenger enter and sign in, please? The mystery guest in this episode is a really smiley blonde guy in a suit. He walks on set, stops at a chalkboard, and draws a big X. Then he takes his seat across the stage from the panel. Panel, all I can tell you about Mr. X is that he provides a service, and we will now show the audience who our guest is and what his line is. Maybe you see where this is going. The guest's name flashes in white block letters across the TV screen. It's Governor Jimmy Carter of Georgia. This is three years before Carter enters the White House. And these panelists, they have no clue who they're staring at. They don't know this dude. It's why I got such a kick out of watching this episode, because Carter's face, his smile, it's just so famous now. Yet there he is, just cheesing away at four clueless panelists. And let's begin the questioning with Arlene Francis. Well, they're crazy about your service. (laughs) Would I be? About my service? Probably. I think so. Is it, um, is it a service that has to do with the uh, women? Yes, it certainly does. So this goes on for a while. The panelists keep taking stabs at who the heck this guy is, but they really struggle to get anywhere. They end up kind of stumbling into the answer that helps them solve it. Four down and six to go, Arlene. I can rule out that you are a government official of any kind, can't I? No. Oh, you fresh. <laughs> no. Seven down, three to go, Gene. You are a non-federal official, is that correct? That's correct. Are you a state official? That's correct. Are you a governor? Yes. That's it. He is Governor Jimmy Carter of the state of Georgia. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if, like, years later, the panelists thought back on this episode and laughed at themselves. Like, geez, how did it happen that the random smiley governor would go on to be the leader of the free world? It all happened because of a rare opening, kind of a glitch in the system. But it wasn't Jimmy Carter who first spotted that glitch. He had some help from this group of young guys who had been with him since his first unsuccessful campaign for governor in 1966. They were Hamilton Jordan, Jody Powell, and Jerry Rafshoon. And these dudes were memorable, to say the least. They'd established reputations as savvy political strategists, and that campaign whiz kid reputation got two of them on the cover of Rolling Stone. They were described by the magazine, ready for this, as apple-cheeked, clean-cut fraternity boy yokels with their cocky grins and smart-ass humor. Powell and Jordan are dead now, but Rafshoon is keeping the love for Carter and the smart-ass humor very much alive. 
For example, a thunderstorm rolled in while we were on the phone. I'm so magnetic, I start thunderstorms. I, you know, it's just, let there be light. Oh my God. Don't, don't, be, don't be throwing Jimmy's name around in vain. So, it was 1972 when the idea first struck these guys that Carter should run for president. Carter had been governor for over a year at that point, and he, Rafshoon, and Jordan went to the Democratic National Convention in Miami. They looked around this big convention center, and they saw a lot of wannabe presidents. Birch Bayh, George Wallace, guys who were already angling to run four years from then. Jordan turned to Rafshoon and said, man, if these guys can run for president, Jimmy could do that. Jordan and Rafshoon decided, all right, when we get back to Georgia, we're going to tell Jimmy he should run for president. So they get home, and Jordan was apparently pretty nervous. They went over to the governor's mansion, and they sit in front of Carter. And we said, uh, we want to talk to you about your future. He said, yes. And we said, well, you can't run for re-election. He said, I know that. It was term limited. It only could be one term at that time. And Hamilton said, we think you should run it. And he went, but... couldn't get it out, couldn't, president. And Jimmy looked at him and says, oh, really? It was at that moment, Rafshoon could tell. Carter had been thinking about it, too. So he's going to run. But how? I mean, as you've heard, hardly anyone knew who this guy was. Carter put it all on Hamilton Jordan. You tell me how I'm going to do this thing. And so he did. And this is why a fairly unknown governor of Georgia ends up spending so much time in New Hampshire. Hamilton Jordan mapped out a strategy for how Carter could win the White House. He typed it out in a nearly 60-page memo, spelling out exactly what it would take, step by step. He assessed Carter's potential opponents, his strengths and weaknesses as a candidate. And Jordan also made a really bold prediction that early primary states, including the tiny state of New Hampshire, they would be key for a no-name like Carter to win the nomination. Now, that might seem obvious now, but at the time, this was a totally new idea. How'd he come up with it? Well, a few reasons. First, the rules on how the country picked presidential nominees had recently and drastically changed. Party bosses had just lost a lot of power. The demonstrators are determined to march on Convention Hall tonight in protest. Chicago police are just as determined not to let them anywhere near the place, so the police are at the park in force. 1968 marked a major turning point for presidential politics. Up until then, presidential nominees were largely chosen by powerful people. It was party bosses who chose delegates to the political conventions, and those delegates chose the nominees. Regular voters didn't have a real say in the process until the general elections rolled around. But in 1968, many voters were desperate to be heard. There was so much anger over the Vietnam War, grief over the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., and then Bobby Kennedy, and it all erupted into massive protests outside the Democratic National Convention in Chicago. Then chanting, kill the pigs, they began bombarding the police with cans, bottles, boards, firecrackers, tomatoes, and just about everything else they could find. Demonstration leaders... So Democrats made a big change. Voters would now pick delegates for the National Party conventions. Republicans would eventually go along with these rules, too. Now, were party bosses totally out of the process? Of course not. But over the next few cycles, more primaries and caucuses would be added to the calendar, giving more voice to regular voters. So Jordan looked back at all this and realized if the people picking nominees are now normal people, 
a different kind of candidate could have a shot, so long as they appeal to regular voters. I could go on and on, he wrote to Carter, but we need to begin thinking now about party rules vis-a-vis primary states and your own effort. It is here that the nomination will be won or lost. If this had been a nomination process that was essentially controlled by the leadership of the Democratic Party, then Jimmy Carter would have stood no chance. Here's another one of the three campaign whiz kids, Jody Powell, talking with NPR. These guys also knew New Hampshire was early in the calendar, and they predicted that a win there or in Iowa, another early state, that could bring some serious momentum to the campaign. So if we could win in Iowa and win in New Hampshire, we just might have enough money to compete effectively in Florida. And New Hampshire had a reputation. Jordan referenced it in the memo. Over the last few cycles, New Hampshire had become a place where dark horse candidates could become serious contenders and where sure winners stumbled. But remember, when I came here to New Hampshire the first time, I only had 4% uh, in the polls. Jordan and those guys remembered well the 1972 Democratic New Hampshire primary. George McGovern scored a surprise second-place finish. And Edmund Muskie, previously the frontrunner, he faded out not too long after that. And four years earlier, there was the 1968 primary, where Gene McCarthy shocked the world, coming in a close second to President Lyndon Johnson, which forced the sitting president to drop out of the race. By any political measure, President Johnson has suffered a major psychological setback in New Hampshire. I shall not seek, and I will not accept, the nomination of my party for another term as your president. So there was a history of underdogs punching above their weight in New Hampshire. But it's not like those underdogs had become presidents. So Jordan put all these pieces together, the new rules, the reputation, and New Hampshire's first-in-the-nation status, and he realized this tiny New England state could be a springboard. But to make it work they'd have to run a new kind of campaign. I'm up here from Plains, Georgia, to ask you to vote for my friend, Jimmy Carter, for president. And she stopped for a minute, but she said, but I am so damn cold. We'll get to that. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. If you want to bring coziness into your life, 
you turn to Barefoot Dreams. Now celebrating 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams is the originator of everyone's favorite Lux Home Blanket. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort, as its ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are each made with premium materials. Get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code PODCAST15. In a minute. Heard a young man speaking out just the other day. So I stopped to take a listen to what he had to say. He spoke straight and simple. By that I was impressed. He said, once and for all, why not the best? I am honored to introduce you to the 1976 Carter campaign song, why not the best? Then he laid out a plan of action It made a lot of sense He talked about the government And how good it could be for you and me Why not the best? That was the vibe of the entire campaign because the best was the opposite of what most Americans felt their government had given them lately. I want to see us once again have a nation that's as good and honest and decent and truthful and competent and compassionate and as filled with love as all the American people. By the time Jimmy Carter was running for president, the country was still processing Watergate. They were angry with President Richard Nixon, and then President Gerald Ford goes ahead and pardons Nixon. Sorry, can, can we just, I just can't get enough of this song. So can we just take a minute out of our day here and just bask in the glory of this gem? That's my favorite part. Once and for all, why not the best? We need Jimmy Carter. We can't afford to settle for less. Okay, thank you for that. Now, Carter's team had high hopes for this vibe, cheesy as it may seem now, because they figured it would help set their guy apart from the rest of the field. I believe it's fair to say that Jimmy Carter was the only non-Washington, non-Beltway candidate running, so that created a little additional interest. Chris Brown was the New England campaign director for Carter, so he was keeping a close eye on the competition. And the Democratic field in 1976 was crowded. Well, they called us the, the seven dwarfs, so <laughs> because none of the candidates had high name IDs. Despite the nickname, there would actually be way more than seven Democrats by the time this race was over. And Chris Brown's right. In the 70s and now, some of these names likely won't ring a bell, like Mo Udall, Birch Bayh, Scoop Jackson, Sergeant Shriver, I could go on. And yet Carter was one of the most unknown of them all. There was a Gallup poll taken at the beginning of the campaign asking voters for their impressions of 31 possible candidates. And Carter wasn't even included. But not all of these guys campaigned in New Hampshire. Some of them didn't even get into the race until New Hampshire was long over. Because New Hampshire just wasn't a must-stop place for presidential candidates at that point. 
But Carter was about to change that. I want to take you through some of the Carter team's strategy for how they take New Hampshire by storm. Because this is where one of the myths behind the New Hampshire primary that people love to celebrate really begins. It's the idea that anyone can come to New Hampshire and work hard enough, look enough voters right in the eye, and that that was enough to become president of the United States. That started right here in the Carter campaign. Okay, so what would this look like on the ground in New Hampshire? First, they needed a team of people who are devoted to the candidate, potentially borderline obsessed. Campaigns are run on two things, love and hate. If you love somebody, you'll do whatever they want and you'll work as hard as you can. If you hate somebody, you'll drive through a mountain to get them. Passion is what wins campaigns, passion. I mean, the kids that were working for us were working 20, 22 hours a day. I mean, they believed, and that's that's the secret. And when Billy Shaheen mentions kids, he's not exaggerating. The New Hampshire team was full of rookies. Most of them had never worked on a presidential campaign before, Shaheen included. Everybody who was anybody was with somebody else other than Jimmy Carter. I mean, I was a nobody. I mean, I was just a nobody, and it was just me and, and a handful of people. That handful of people included Carter's actual family members. This was a new thing and something that Carter's team was really committed to. They covered early states with his family. His second oldest son, Chip, literally moved to New Hampshire, all the way from Plains, Georgia. Was that like an exciting thing at the time or were you like, were you into it? Uh, Obviously into it, but it was more scary than exciting at first. Why is that? (laughs) Well, I failed speech three times in college, and I was expected to make at least a speech when I got there. So that was nerve-wracking to start with. (laughs) Okay, so they've got the New Hampshire team, made up of mostly rookies and relatives, and they're starting to understand the competition. Next, they needed their candidate to meet New Hampshire voters. And obviously, there was no internet, so there was no going live on Instagram from your kitchen while drinking a beer or filming YouTube videos from your tour across your home state. If candidates wanted to introduce themselves to voters, they literally had to do it in person. It's an essential part of New Hampshire campaign lore, but it's also a matter of logistics. This is a small state. Only 82,000 people would vote in the 76th Democratic primary, hardly enough to fill some big college football stadiums. And New Hampshire ain't Texas. You can drive from the bottom to the top of the state in less than four hours. So visiting grocery stores or main streets is actually efficient. I just want to speak to you. I'm Jimmy Carter running for president. Oh, yeah. I just need a picture on the paper. Carter was pretty good at this. He'd look voters right in the eye, and he would tell them, I will never lie to you. Well, New Hampshire is a unique state. It's the only place in the nation where we have a chance to uh, campaign on a personal basis just the candidate and individual voters in um, colleges and high schools and grammar schools and beauty parlors and barbershops and factory shift lines and restaurants and on the street. And uh, this is what I've done, and it's the kind of campaigning I like. Jordan had a feeling Carter would go over well in New Hampshire. He wrote in the memo that this rural state could be a good fit. Quote, I believe that your farmer, businessman, military, religious, conservative background would be well received there. End quote. And at the end of a long day of glad-handing or pressing the flesh in New Hampshire, Carter would sleep in supporters' houses. I mean, would it be easier if he just stayed in hotels? Oh, God, yes. Ellis Woodward was Carter's scheduler in New Hampshire, so he was responsible for setting up Carter's sleeping arrangements. It's quite something else to find, you know, where he's going to stay if he's staying in a private home. And then there's also balancing 
Well, there might be two or three people who want him to stay at their home, and then figure out how you're going to explain to the other two people, well, he's not staying with you, right? I mean, it's all sort of juvenile, but you do have to do that. This whole sleepover business started as a cost-saving measure for the Carter campaign, but it became another thing entirely. Nixon's presidency had been famously called the imperial presidency. And now, here you have a guy running for the same office, sleeping in strangers' spare rooms. George McGovern probably did it. Eugene McCarthy probably did it. And, uh, but they are, these are sort of things that happen that then become, you know, sort of parts of, you know, they get woven into the story. And once they start to get woven into the story, well, you know, what's the candidate in the campaign going to do? I mean, you're not going to sort of close the chapter on that. I mean, you have to continue doing it, whether it's annoying or not, right? Of course you have to keep doing it because the people who got to host Carter loved it. Imagine waking up early to put the coffee on for a potential president. And you better believe those people would tell their friends about it. And word would spread about how Carter was the perfect house guest, very gracious, very neat, always made his bed perfectly. Just the sort of image Carter's team was hoping to project. But something else was happening here, too. Having Carter sleep at your house, it wasn't just good for him. It started to change how New Hampshire voters would think about themselves. We feed breakfast to future presidents. We're important. We make history. Hosts would prominently display Jimmy Carter slept here plaques in their homes. Even now, I just saw a real estate listing for a house in Laconia, New Hampshire. And in the description, right after new toilet and half bath, it says a beautiful historic home where James Earl Jimmy Carter slept during the 1976 New Hampshire Democratic primary. Each mention, a small bit of proof that New Hampshire is special and it deserves to be first. Now, what about when Carter wasn't in New Hampshire? The campaign needed to hammer home to voters this image of Carter as an honest, good guy. And to do this, Hamilton Jordan came up with a new, frankly, kind of silly idea that the next best thing to the actual candidate was a plane full of sweet, honest-to-goodness Georgians who knew Jimmy personally. Well, I know I had one man that um, listened very politely as I told him the story of Jimmy Carter and handed him the brochure and told him why I was there. When I finished, he looked at me and he said, young lady, I have not understood a word you have said. And I had, (laughs) you know, I probably was talking pretty fast in my Southern accent. And, but he said, but I will take the brochure and I will read about your friend Jimmy Carter. And I thank you for coming. Introducing the Peanut Brigade, a group of around 100 Georgians, people who knew Carter from church or from when he was governor, who flew to New Hampshire and eventually other states to campaign for their pal. Dot Paget was known as the den mother of this crew. It was January 1976, so the primary was just a month away. And when they land, the campaign gathers the brigadiers together to share some key New Hampshire intel, like what to wear in the snow, how to drive in the snow, because, you know, January in New Hampshire, not for the week. And many of these Georgians had never been this far north. Kathy Rogers was a Carter intern at the time. She's now a New Hampshire state representative. And she remembers this meeting. Well, they didn't want to waste their time. They wanted to get out on the streets, which was good. But then within half an hour of getting out, we started getting phone calls. They were lost. They were stuck in the snow. They were cold. They were, it was like, 
Every imaginable thing happened that you could imagine happening. There are so many stories like this. Georgians without proper New England footwear, slipping on ice, falling through snowbanks, not knowing how you're supposed to walk through a snowy yard to get to someone's front door. For some woman, has got her fur coat on. I mean, you know, make fur coat because that doesn't go well in the area. But she's doing it anyway because she wants to do it. So we send her out to the richer neighborhoods. Someone told me a story of a peanut brigader almost driving into someone's garage. And apparently the Georgia lieutenant governor's wife went missing for a while. But they were so friendly and they were so charming. And they were, I mean, you know how Northerners melt with a Southern accent. And they were all charming about it, too. So they found as many troubles as they found themselves in, they found people to rescue them because people couldn't resist them. A woman whose husband was mayor of Plains, Georgia, 600 people, you know, went to knock on a door. And she was a very refined Southern lady. And she knocked on the door, and these people opened the door just a little bit. And she told them, I'm up here from Plains, Georgia, to ask you to vote for my friend, Jimmy Carter, for president. And she stopped for a minute, but she said, but I am so damn cold. She said, I don't care who you all vote for. And the the people laughed and invited her in for a cup of tea, cup of coffee. She sat around the kitchen table, and they were so intrigued with her story, they invited some of the neighbors in. Carter's 1976 New Hampshire primary campaign gave New Hampshire one hell of a gift. Its best argument for why it should be first, why it deserves this privileged status. Here you had a powerful image of participatory democracy. Now the expectations were set for candidates. You can't just announce you're running and hope the New Hampshire voters come to you. You have to hustle. You have to answer real questions and show voters who you really are. And to this day, when New Hampshire's first in the nation primary is threatened, that is what our biggest defenders turn to. You want to take away the power of real people to pick their president? New Hampshire voters are savvy. They know who's the real deal and who's bullshitting them. For all, why not the best? New Hampshire, they say, makes better presidents. We'll be right back. All right, so what voters saw in New Hampshire, the Carter family visits, the peanut brigade, Jimmy Carter was running a similar play in Iowa because Carter's hotshot political aide, Hamilton Jordan, he was putting all his chips on the two earliest contests, the Iowa caucus and the New Hampshire primary. It was a gamble. No one had ever done this before. But in January of 1976, they'd get their first indication that Jordan's bets could pay off. Carter got his first surprise victory in Iowa. That was, that's what Hamilton and those guys had envisioned. I mean, if they were thinking lift, I mean, we got lift off. Ellis Woodward, you'll remember, was Carter's scheduler in New Hampshire. Now, Carter technically didn't win the Iowa caucus. He came in second to uncommitted, meaning the largest number of votes didn't go to any candidate. But the media spin that would come out of Iowa was essentially that he won, which plays right into Jordan's strategy. That momentum was the real power here, not winning in itself, but having a good underdog story that can push you forward. And when I think back at that, you know, that was the circus comes to town. 
And I freely admit, we were not ready for it. Carter had got some press in the lead-up to the Iowa caucus, you know, interviews in local papers and who could resist the peanut brigade. But after the Iowa caucuses, suddenly Carter was the center of the political universe. Everyone wanted to see him in action. Everyone followed him back to New Hampshire. Here's Kathy Rogers, the Carter intern who worked with the peanut brigade. The last trip before Iowa, we had like a minivan that we put the press in. But now we had to get a bus. It's like, what do you mean a bus? This is incredible. The stakes were really high now. They had to win New Hampshire to keep the momentum from Iowa going and take it to the other states. Listen to me. Every vote you get in New Hampshire is worth like 10,000 votes someplace else. Billy Shaheen says this is when he learned an important lesson, that the days between the Iowa caucus and the New Hampshire primary are critical. All of New Hampshire is paying attention now, so you've got to really hammer home your final argument with people. You want someone who's brave and 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 who's good and honest. This is the guy, and you and you just repeat his story. I mean, imagine it's just like the Bible. Why we why do we talk about Jesus? Because of the examples he sent for us. Well, Jimmy Carter's got all these examples of being good and kind, and you just repeat them. And remember, only 80,000 or so Democratic voters are going to come out and vote. So any trip to any town could be what puts a candidate on top. It's the reason why the campaign took a last-minute gamble. With the primary just days away, they splurged on two small planes that would take them up to northern New Hampshire, to Berlin, a city of about 14,000 people. And at first, it seemed like maybe this was the wrong call. It was a horrible, horrible horrible day. It was snowy, windy, icy. There was, the Secret Service was not wild about the prospect of us flying up to Berlin in, this, in these. And Carter wanted to go. And Berlin was, and we thought, you know, Berlin was so important. So they take off. Two little planes, one full of press, one with Carter and his team. Woodward says they flew right over the White Mountains, and it was a harrowing journey. Both planes are getting tossed around. Secret Service agents are turning green. But eventually, one plane lands. And we were there waiting for the press plane to arrive, which didn't. I mean, we waited and we waited. The tower couldn't contact them. And so, you know, there's this few moments and we just we all stood waited at the airport and because uh, my god had this plane crashed thankfully no it hadn't it flew into canada or something it was lost for a while but the point is the carter campaign needed every vote they could find and that dedication the idea that a guy running for president would nearly die to meet voters in the north country talk about new hampshire primary mythology to the people of Berlin, I mean, the stories immediately spread around Berlin very quickly. Not only that, because we had a schedule, we saw all kinds of people, and uh, but what he did to get there, and and he flew back, and um, and that you know he cared enough that he was going to come up here. He was no matter how bad it was, and then you know the lost press plane. That flight to Berlin got uh, dubbed the White Knuckle flight. Rich Padnode volunteered for the Carter campaign up in Berlin. He was the one who really pushed them to make this trip north. He knew if his neighbors got to meet Carter one more time, face-to-face, right before Election Day, they'd go for him. I mean, you probably had white knuckles while waiting. No, I'm, I was fine. I just I was so thrilled that he was coming because I really needed for him to come. I really, you know, just kind of seal the deal. This response kills me. Oh, I was fine, Patnot says, no matter that a bunch of people almost crashed. My neighbors need to feel like they know a candidate before they can vote for him. Because in 1976, and still today, 
that was the expectation, that if you want to win here, you better throw yourself at the feet of the New Hampshire voters. And you know how it ends. It all paid off. And what I want is to repair the damage that has been done to the relationship between our people and our government and to tear down a wall that separated us from it. And you are the ones that have made it possible for me to do it. You also know how the rest of Carter's story ends, too. He'd go on to be a one-term president, and his win in New Hampshire charted a path that many candidates have followed since. He gave every political outsider out there a little hope that they could make it to the White House. That New Hampshire tonight has made Bill Clinton the comeback kid. Mainly our thanks and our joy goes out to you, the people of New Hampshire. But tonight, we sure showed them what a comeback looks like. Looking out at a screaming crowd after an unexpected victory in New Hampshire, this, this is the moment every candidate for president now dreams about. You want to talk about euphoric. I mean, that's the only word you can use for me. I was, my feet weren't touching the ground. Billy Shaheen, you'll remember, is the New Hampshire co-chair. He says he was standing up on stage while Carter delivered his victory speech. It was like... All this hard work, you know, it's like a crescendo. You keep building, 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 building. Each, you know, you, even now, you know, you, okay, I'm going to work two days a week, and all of a sudden three days a week, and all of a sudden you're not even sleeping. You're just running on adrenaline. You know you got to deliver this thing. You can't miss a single vote. You're going crazy, and everything is bubbling to a point, and you've got the team. That's what you've built. And all of a sudden it builds and builds and builds, and then you win. And, and I was so naturally high at that moment. And this is the moment that every New Hampshire campaign staffer now dreams about. Because this feeling Shaheen experienced, the story he now tells, it didn't just happen to him. And it doesn't only happen to Democrats. It happens every four years. New Hampshire staffers up on or behind that stage at the victory party, so naturally high, basking in the glory of victory after months and months of hard work. But look, it's not just about winning. It's about where they could go from here. Without the primary, who is Billy Shaheen? Maybe a successful attorney, but he wouldn't be getting calls from presidential candidates. Changed my life, absolutely. I never would have been U.S. attorney. I doubt if I would have been the judge in Durham. You know, it certainly made my wife's career. His wife, by the way, that would be New Hampshire's senior U.S. senator and former governor, Gene Shaheen, a powerful national politician. They both got their start on this campaign. Yeah. In fact, there's a, there's a, a moment about six or seven years ago when I was in Washington, and I went, went and tried to find where Jeannie was, and she was at a Senate hearing. It was 2009, so 10 years ago now. Shaheen was wandering around Capitol Hill until he found the hearing room the senator was in. He squeezed into a seat in the audience where he could only see the back of the head of the person testifying. And then... He heard a familiar voice. I think that, that the fact that the Foreign Relations Committee is addressing this is extremely important. As soon as I heard Jimmy Carter's voice, I said, that's Jimmy Carter. I said, I'm second to everything, that's Jimmy Carter. Uh, she, he said, we have one more question from Senator Shaheen. And she said, Mr. President. Welcome, Mr. President, Rosalind and Amy. Thank you very much for being here. And he said, let me stop you there. Thank you for having and, me be president. Yeah. And, uh, well, I was going to say, I, I also need to thank you for my being here. And she said, it was, uh, and I wouldn't be a U.S. senator without you. In 1975 that got me into politics, so thank Pretty you good, huh? 
Yeah, so it, it, it actually made her career, yeah. It made, changed my life. There are a lot of people in New Hampshire whose lives have been changed by New Hampshire's first-in-the-nation primary. They were either relative nobodies like Corey Lewandowski, who jumped on the Trump bandwagon early, and he now has a direct line to the White House. And as I wrote this episode, he was considering running for the U.S. Senate. Or they were already powerful people, but would advance even further, like former Governor John H. Sununu, who would go from the State House to being chief of staff for President George H.W. Bush. I can't tell you how many interviews I've done with people outside of this podcast who name dropped that some presidential candidate called them lately, or they just so happened to have left on their desk a photo with them and some other candidate. I've sat in a lot of offices surrounded by a lot of pictures of past New Hampshire primaries. And lately, I've been asking these people an uncomfortable question. So much has changed in our politics since Carter's 76 campaign. There's a 24-hour news cycle now, bigger televised debates, social media. Some candidates lean on massive campaign rallies. So is the New Hampshire primary truly as powerful as it once was? Now, will it happen? Will it be forever? I don't know. I don't know if it will be forever, but there was a time, point in time where it was Camelot. Camelot. Camelot, I know it sounds a bit bizarre, but in Camelot, Camelot, that's how conditions are. To see a photo of Billy Shaheen's trophy wall of photos of him and presidents and celebrities, go to our website, strangleholdpodcast.com. You got Diana Ross, though. I got Diana Ross. Yeah, I got Willie Nelson. Is that Ted Williams? Yeah. Damn. Yeah. This episode was reported and produced by me, Lauren Chulgin, and I've learned that podcasts are a real team sport. And I'm very thankful for all the help I had in putting this episode together. Jack Rodolico is Stranglehold's senior producer. Stranglehold is edited by NHPR's director of content, Maureen McMurray, and news director, Dan Barrick. Additional editing help came from Casey McDermott, Josh Rogers, and Tony Arnold, and sound mixing by Hannah McCarthy, me, and Jason Moon. Big thanks also to Jason Moon for honestly being a producer spirit guide through this episode. Jason and Lucas Anderson also created the dope original music in this episode, including that great 70s shaker situation. Rebecca Lavoy is NHPR's digital director, and Sarah Plord made our beautifully aggressive podcast graphics. Of course, very special thanks to Dad, Barry Chuljan, who helped us name this podcast. And additional thanks to Jason Mark, John DeStazo, James Pindle, Jonathan Alter, Ray Buckley, Morgan Millard of Shermahorn, and extra thanks to Chris Brown for connecting me with many of the voices you heard in this podcast. And some of our archival tape was courtesy of NBC Universal Archives. Stranglehold is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. Then here come It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. 
But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.